Hey, thanks for checking out the Know What a Methodist Church podcast. I'm Jeffrey Brickman. I'm the preacher here, and I'm the preacher you're going to hear preach in this episode that we're putting out. So um, within the the universal church, uh, many traditions observe what's called the liturgical year, and to some degree most churches observe it. That's where Christmas and Easter come from. But a lot of people don't know these come from more ancient traditions where there's a whole season of Christmas and a whole season of Easter, and before them comes the seasons of Advent and the seasons of Lent. So we this is the first Sunday where we started Lent, and during the liturgical seasons, the high holy seasons, uh, this church reverts to the King James Version of the Bible, and we go by the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a series of four readings that all have a common theme. And so uh, if you've watched or listened to previous episodes of this podcast, you've noticed that for a while uh, in what's called ordinary time, we've been preaching through books of the Bible, and that's been great. Uh, but in this, what's going to be the case for the next several, I don't know, two or three months, is I'm going to be preaching on the Revised Common Lectionary in the King James. And if that turns you off, you might you know, just stick with it a little bit and see if you don't get something out of it. This was an interesting last Sunday where it's connecting the waters of the flood to the waters of baptism, and we're talking about what that means for us who are born again in Christ Jesus, and what is the role that baptism plays in all of that, and um, it, it ties into sanctification and a bunch of other important things. So uh, st- stick with me. I think you'll benefit from it. I, I don't say anything that I don't think is worth saying, and I generally know what is interesting and worthy, so... Uh, go out on a limb and trust me a little bit, and uh, I, I think the message will be good for you. Um, just want to remember to urge you, if you don't already belong to a local church where you are, find a local church where you are. I don't know where you're listening from. If you're in this town, you're very welcome to come in with me and my fellowship. Uh, but if you live in another place, find a church that is a Bible-believing church and a pastor who lives it as well as preaches it and uh, a fellowship that knows how to fear the Lord. You know, not a perfect fellowship, but just looking for good raw materials there. Um, my hope here is not that I take other people's sheep or that I, I make people think that they're faithfully participating in the church, even though they're not. My hope is just to provide some food so that you want more and that you draw closer to Christ through His church. So to that end, hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. All right, our first reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, which you can find on page 11 of your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful, and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. 
And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark, and to every beast on the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of, of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations I do set my bow in a cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Hopefully we've all read the story of Noah and the flood. The children's group on Thursday and I have recently concluded this narrative. One of the things lost on people about the flood for some reason, it's the, it's the worst holocaust the world has ever seen. Only eight humans survived. Almost all the animals and, and plant life died. It was a terrible, terrible event, but it's funny. You go into a children's nursery at any given church and you'll find happy depictions of the sweet little animals getting on the ark as the world is about to get wiped out. Just weird. Sorry, uh, well. What are the things we need to understand about this particular passage? The key text today is probably gonna be First Peter, where it talks about how God saved Noah through the flood. I understood this in a new way today that I'm gonna submit to you, and I'm pretty sure I've never understood that verse rightly before today. The things that I think all of us need to understand is that God gives a series of covenants through the Old Testament. He doesn't make just one with us through Christ Jesus. He's made several throughout history. And then there are different beliefs about what the covenant with Christ Jesus does. Does it cancel out all the others? He says it fulfills all the others. But what does that mean? Here, what is the nature of this covenant? He says that before they could only eat plants. Remember in uh, the Garden of Eden? He told Adam and Eve they could eat any and all of the plants, but he didn't give them permission to eat the animals. Now he says, eat the animals. They should all be afraid of you because you can eat them now. And so it's okay to eat animals except for one part of the animals. What are you not supposed to eat in the animal? Blood. Now, does that stand today or did that get wiped out with the new covenant of Christ Jesus? Still stands. The, co- the, uh, the Council of Jerusalem got together in Acts of the Apostles. These were all believers And they said this is one of the mandatory things that even Gentiles, if Gentiles came in and they were used to eating blood, they cannot eat blood anymore. Why? Because life is in the blood. And that's why sacrifice means something. That's why sacrifices of bulls and goats mattered in the Old Covenant. That's why the sacrifice of Christ Jesus on the cross matters. It's his atoning blood applied to our hearts that saves us. Blood is powerful. And you are not God. So don't eat his food. I know that's kind of a weird way of talking about it, but uh, you don't take vengeance because that's God's vengeance to take. You don't eat the blood because his life is in that blood. 
It is a sinful thing to eat blood. Don't do it. Because what you have in this blood is holy, and that's why it is a sin to kill other people, to shed their blood. And so anyone who sheds human blood, it says God is going to commission other humans to kill them. And even if an animal kills a human, God will punish that animal. Isn't that quite a thing? Do not spill human blood. That's categorical here. The, um, the last bit. The bow in the clouds. See, God made this unconditional covenant. Did he ask anything of them? No. He asked nothing of them. He put this bow in the clouds. What do we use bows for nowadays if someone has a bow? Zachary. Yeah, to shoot arrows. Our God is a warrior God. Do you know this? He's a warrior God, and he has weapons of his divine justice. One of them is a bow. But whenever a hunter has got his bow on the wall, he's not hunting. So you hang a bow on the wall. That's what God did here. He hung his bow in the clouds. When you see his bow, you know he's not out hunting. He's not going to war against us. That's the meaning that's lost on us. We just think, oh, what a pretty thing. He gave us a pretty thing. That's not the point here. He's hung up his weapon, and he's showing us that he's not going to war against us, so we don't need to worry. Now, we have been told by Peter in the New Testament that the world will end. There will be another holocaust rivaling this. It's just going to come through fire, not water. We're never going to be flooded out again. So scratch that off the list of things you need to worry about. No more floods that are going to wipe everybody out. We're going to have small ones. God is not going to war against us. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day long. Be mindful of thy mercy, O Lord, and of thy steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to thy steadfast love, remember me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. And teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord. Pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait for thee. I'm sure a full hour could be devoted to talking through this, but the things that I would enforce are, it says very clearly that we are sinners, right? Pardon my guilt, for it is great. That's quite a, a confession of sin. So even though we are justified, even though we're walking in the light of God, it's important to remember that we are sinners in need, in need of God's grace every day. We never get to a place where we don't need God's grace. The second thing I would focus on is it talks about the importance of fear here. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him will the Lord instruct in the way that he should choose. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. That inclines me to say, well, and you've heard me preach on this before, that if you don't fear the Lord, one, you don't know the Lord, and you don't please the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear him, you should read your Bible more. He is a fearsome God. He is a warrior God who will exact justice on all flesh. Beware.
Let's hear from our third reading, our first Peter reading. Morning, everyone. Our third reading is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, which you can find on page 1709 of your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the thing that's always gotten stuck in my craw, I told you about it earlier, um, in verse 20 it said, uh, well, okay, I'll get to it, but let's walk through this. It talked about how Christ once suffered for sins. Of course, it's talking about the cross, right? The just for the unjust. Who's the just one? Who's the unjust one? Me. He suffered for us on the cross, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us back to God. He was put to death in the flesh, and he was quickened by the Spirit. Now, of course, his spirit would always, was always alive when he was in the flesh, but the notion here is that once he died, his spirit departed from his body and did some work. What was that work? Verse 19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. So I've read to you from the book of Enoch before. This ties into Genesis chapter 6. Remember, before the flood, angels had left their station in heaven and come down and had children with the women here, human women. And it was abomination to the Lord. They produced children that were an abomination, giants. And they spread warfare and hatred and sin across the world. It was terrible. The only ones that were not corrupted by this yet were Noah and his three sons and all their wives. That's eight people. So, the flood was sent not just to wipe out humans, but to wipe out those who would come and influence the humans. All of those uh, demonic angels and their progeny, it was to kill all of them. That's what the flood was for. So, what happened to them? Their spirits went to a place that the Bible calls Tartarus. It's a, it's a prison in another realm, and that's where Jesus' spirit went, and he preached unto them in prison. It says that they were the ones who were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So this is telling the exact same story that Genesis does. There were disobedient angels that caused disobedient people that sinned against the Lord. He wiped them all out. They were present in the days of Noah. Now they are in Tartarus. Jesus, whenever he died, he descended to the dead, and he went and he preached at them about their damnation. And that's what Enoch describes in more detail. But it's not in the Bible, so you don't have to believe in Enoch, you just believe in what you've got. Um, it says that he uh, went down to those who were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, a being built, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. First, hundred times I read that, I said, shouldn't it say saved from the water? Right? The water killed everybody, right? How was the water saving them? And for some reason, I never thought of the question, 
what would the water be saving them from? And once I thought of that this morning, it became so obvious to me. What did the water save Noah and his family from? This, no, not this, the, the sinful, evil people all around them. They were surrounded by evil, wicked, nasty uh, things that were going to kill them and corrupt them. All the earth had been corrupted. God preserved them, and then he wiped out everybody that was a threat to them through that water. That water saved them. And, of course, the ark saved them from the water, sure. But when we're talking about baptism, then, this is a prefiguring of baptism. It teaches us what baptism does. He says, verse 21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. So that's where it goes directly from the flood to baptism. Now, both employ water imagery, right? But usually we look at baptism as a cute little ceremony. We might sprinkle some water on a little baby. I've done my best to kind of make this more adult for you. We've looked at Romans chapter 6 where it says those of us who've been baptized have died and been raised from the waters in newness of life. Here, what it's drawing a connection to is Noah who is saved from this, his sinful and corrupt generation, we receive that exact same thing in the waters of baptism. We come out of a sinful and destructive world, dead in its sins, unable to save itself. We leave that world behind in the waters of baptism, and we're raised to newness of life and saved from those around us. We have a hard time looking at the world this way. We love people of the world, don't we? We love family members that aren't saved. We love co-workers that aren't saved, neighbors that aren't saved. We hate looking at them like... They are people deserving of God's destruction who are going to get us killed. But that's what they are. And so the waters of baptism are really needed to preserve us against this age of spiritual darkness. That's, that's exactly what he's pointing to here. I've lost all doubt about this. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Baptism is not putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience to God. It's not a bath. It's not bath time when people come up here and I dump the water on them. We're not getting them clean, uh, some kind of ritual bath. What, what's happening is a testimony of a good conscience towards God. Giving up on ourselves and our sins, giving up on our way of life, our hearts, what makes sense to us, and then casting all our cares on him, putting all our trust in him. And he sees us through that death and resurrection right there in the act of baptism. As I talk about it, does it sound like baptism's a big deal? The Bible is also uniformly clear that baptism is a big deal. Now, we need to be clear. Does baptism save us? It's faith alone that saves us. However, once we have faith, there are many things that we are compelled to do. And right on the front end is repent and get baptized. That is the biblical pattern established in the gospel, seen throughout the rest of the New Testament. If you are refusing to get baptized, then you do not have the saving faith of Jesus Christ. And if that hurts somebody, it's meant to. I hurt people because they need to move in the right direction. Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Part of my job is giving people sorrow, making them insecure in their faith so that they make a good decision. Baptism is absolutely essential to walk rightly with Christ in faith because it does something. It does a hundred things. It does some really big things. One of the things that it does is it ends our allegiance to this world, saves us from this world, gives us new life in Christ Jesus. We've already received new life in a sense through faith, but faith answers that love of God by getting baptized. 
So we're talking about the resurrection of Christ Jesus who has gone into heaven is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. The reason it focuses on that is if Jesus isn't at the right hand of God, if he's not in control of the universe, then he can't protect us the way he said he will. He can't do what he said he's going to do. But if he's up with God in the highest heavens and we are connected to him through his Holy Spirit, which we are, nothing can take us from his hand. Nothing, else can, nothing can ruin God's plan, and that's what makes it so that we should put all of our trust in him because he is faithful. Amen? Amen. It's from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Verses 9 through 15. You can find it on page 1391 of your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately... The Spirit driveth him, Jesus, into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and angels ministered to him. Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. There's actually a ton of content here that we don't have time to get into. I would just acknowledge that Susanna and I read through this account of Christ being baptized because it's a proof text for the concept of the Trinity because Christ is involved, God the Father is involved, right? His voice is heard from heaven, and the Holy Spirit is involved, descending like a dove upon him. It's just one of those situations where you're like, no, God doesn't take three different forms. He doesn't shift from one to the other. No, God is three persons in one God. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually an amazing story. The, the problematic thing about this is that Jesus got baptized. For us, we need to get baptized because we're dead in our sins. Was Jesus ever dead in his, his sins? No. no. Jesus is the pioneer and forerunner of our faith. He doesn't say why he has to get baptized. And Matthew, John the Baptist says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, let it be this way for righteousness sake. That doesn't mean anything. He just says, just do it pretty much, I think. And so John just does it. But we're never given an explanation what this means. My theory is Jesus, the way he lived, the way he died, the way he rose, that's how we need to live and die and raise. So he, he walked the path that he expects us to walk. That's, that's what I think this is. It's also just a theophany. It's showing who he is. You know, if there were no account like this or the mountaintop uh, transfiguration, it would be a little bit harder to make the case for Christ. Not really. I mean, he rose from the dead. As long as that's in place, that's all we need. But even so, there were multiple evidences along the way, this being the first one at the start of his ministry. And immediately it says, right after God showed this, what did he do? He went in the desert and fasted for 40 days. Can you imagine? It is so hard to fast, guys. I drove into Tulsa just the other day, and there are billboards for food everywhere. 
If you get online, yeah, and you just drive around town, you hear these smells wafting from all these restaurants that are so delicious. And you get online and you see advertisements for all this food. Oh my gosh, it's all over the place. And if you have a family, you go home and there's food there. They're making it for the stinking kids. Temptation all around. I wonder what it was like for Jesus in the wilderness. I've been wondering that a lot. I wonder if you just start, you remember in the Looney Tunes where people are, I forget which cartoon it was, but at one point there are people on an island and everything they look at starts looking like a hamburger or a hot dog. I wonder if that's how Jesus got just looking at all like the every what I mean in the the desert there I mean there's not a lot but I wonder if he just started seeing food everywhere he went because Jesus dealt with the same stuff that we do he suffered temptation the way that we do he suffered pain the way that we do weakness frailty he just never gave in to any of it he conquered it in the flesh and that's why we're able to do so when we receive his spirit even so it means something that one who is holy and saved and blameless still practices self-denial. The dominant religion in America today says if we are saved, we don't need to practice self-denial. Jesus did everything so we don't have to do anything. And the reality is you can't save yourself, right? Jesus paid that price that you couldn't pay. But the other reality is he showed us how we should live. That's what I was just talking about in baptism. We need to get baptized and we need to practice self-denial, radical self-denial. There are a lot of people that really struggle with different sins in life and they go, oh, it's just so hard as though that's an excuse. It's not an excuse. If Jesus is able to do this and he didn't even need to, he was just showing us the way, then we should be appalled when people go, no, my life is really about just doing what I want. That's the anti-gospel. Now, whether or not you fast, you should be practicing self-denial. You should be regularly warring against your flesh. I, of course, observe Lent, and I advocate for people to enter into a time of severe, to some degree, uh, self-denial, so that you can know what it was like to be Christ in some sense. We are brought closer to him through suffering. Now, Christians have always gotten a bit wonky about this. There are some Christians that have tried to cause their own suffering. I don't know if you've ever heard of self-flagellation. But a lot of people in the ancient world and early Christianity would make these whips of cords and they would whip themselves on the back to just cause themselves suffering to be brought closer to Christ. That's silly. Don't do that. But practicing self-denial, yes, it's painful. You're not causing the pain. Uh, what do they say in sports? Pain is the evidence of weakness leaving your body. Y'all ever heard that before? Isn't that a good saying? Pain builds character pain goes away and it makes us stronger that's what i taught Susanna when she was really young anytime she got hurt i'd say what does pain do she'd say goes away and makes you stronger she was so cute she's not that cute anymore i need a new baby we got one on the way it's gonna be a boy he'll be cute too pain is not evil otherwise jesus wouldn't have done it we look at we look at pain like it's evil oh if if I have pain, I'm doing something wrong. No, sometimes, a lot of times, pain comes when you're doing something right. Another saying about pain, no pain. We got some good sayings around pain. But we don't practice what we preach. We avoid pain with everything we got. When we're in pain, oh, we just can't stand it. We need some tougher, tougher followers of Jesus. We need people who can withstand the assaults of the evil one and the temptations of their flesh. 
And that's what self-denial is for. It's for preparing us for days of true suffering. For right now, self-denial is our training. There are days coming when true believers will be tortured, persecuted, killed for the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're not preparing for that and training for that, you are going to fail in the hour that it matters. That's not a prophecy. That's just an inevitability. You can't run a marathon if you haven't trained for it. You can't withstand the threats of the evil one if you haven't trained for it. Jesus went into the wilderness, fasted for 40 days. He was tempted of Satan and prevailed. We have that story more clearly in Matthew and Luke. And then it says he began his ministry. And he went proclaiming the gospel everywhere. And what was the substance of that gospel? It was the time is fulfilled the kingdom has come near the kingdom of god has come near to earth repent you 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 repent and believe in the good news that's the substance of what jesus preached everywhere he went it wasn't some feel-good mamby-pamby lukewarm thing that we hear in all the churches today it was time's up time is fulfilled kingdoms come near you have one thing to do repent and believe that's two things, but they're tied to one thing. Repent, believe in the good news. What's the good news? You can't know the fullness of it till you read your full Bible. The gospel, good news, yeah, that's the word for it. You can't know the fullness of the gospel, but the place where most Christians start is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that good news? Jesus said everywhere he went, time's up. Get ready, repent, and believe in the good news. If you don't, you're toast. And that's what sets us on mission. We're not here to just sit and be comfortable and lead worldly lives. That is the opposite of what we're here to do. We're here to practice self-denial, to be hated by the world that hates Jesus, and to, to live lives of hardship until Christ comes again in glory. And on that day, we will hear, God willing, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the glory that's been prepared for you. Do you want to hear those words? May that be our heart's only desire. Because the world is calling us to desire other things, we desire one thing. As the psalm said, Lord, just give me some mean place in your kingdom. That's where I want to be. Lord, come down to earth. I'm tired of this. The threat is when we love our lives too much. When we love our families too much, when we love our money too much, our stuff too much, our friends too much, our comfort too much, that's when things get really bad for us. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Amen.